director Terrence Malick's 2011 movie, The Tree of Life, late critic Roger Ebert had the following to say. Terrence Malick's new film is a form of prayer. It created within me a spiritual awareness and made me more alert to the awe of existence. It functions to pull us back from the distractions of the moment and focus us on mystery and gratitude. What Malik does in the tree of life is create the span of lives, of birth, childhood, the flush of triumph, the anger of belittlement, the poison of resentment, the warmth of forgiving. That's Roger Ebert. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. So given that today's episode is devoted to this movie, The Tree of Life, which I think should be of a special interest to a Catholic audience. I figured we could start with the movie's trailer, which though of course you can't see it, you can at least get something of the feel of the movie, uh, something of its characters and themes. So figure we'll just throw you into it and uh, just give you a feel for the movie. Here it is. 32 ways through life. The way of nature in the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. We're alligators. You'll be grown before that tree is tall. It takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. Come on, hit me. Hit me. Come on, son. He's afraid of you. You expect things that a mulling adult can accomplish. I've just always wanted you to be strong, be your own man. Father, mother, always you wrestle inside me. Always you will. Someday we'll fall down and weep. And we'll understand it all. actually begins in silence. Upon the black screen in white lettering are the following words from the book of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? And of course, these are words from God addressed to Job. And within them, we find some of the themes of the tree of life. We see something here of the glory of creation, the foundations of the earth. And we also have a sense of God reconfiguring or sort of refocusing 
Job's vision of the whole of existence, including his own. And we, in fact, are invited to those very considerations, the movie of the Tree of Life, which, as you'll hear in the interview today in this episode, is basically about everything uh, that has to do with being human, of being finite, of being temporal, though in relationship with that which is eternal and infinite, namely God. So after this quote from the book of Job, over the next few hours, the movie of the Tree of Life throws us, it thrusts us through the grandness, the grandeur, and the glory of existence, of reality as a whole. And this reality in almost every dimension and depth, we see its glory, we see its beauty, we see the joy of a human life, a family life, of, of marriage and children. Though none of this is untouched by tragedy, sorrow, and the deep torments of living a truly human life. And so we find ourselves as viewers in this juxtaposition between the glory of the whole of creation and then the particular joys and sorrows and challenges of actual individual human lives lived in relationship with other human beings, but also with the whole of creation and, and God as well. And throughout the movie, we hear characters almost in hushed tones addressing God. And so we, we see something and hear something of a confession throughout the movie, a confession of wrongdoing, of one's sins in a way, and also something of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for the goodness of existence, for the goodness of God shining through all of creation. And so I'm sure you can already tell this movie can be seen as being very St. Augustine-like. And guiding us through this particular reading of the movie of the Tree of Life today is Paul Camacho, who is Associate Director of the Augustinian Institute and Arthur J. Ennis Postdoctoral Fellow in the Humanities at Villanova University. A couple months ago, I came across a paper of his addressing these very themes, which I found as being a particularly rich and in a sense provocative way of viewing this movie, The Tree of Life. And thankfully, we were able to sit down and discuss the movie at length. And that's what you're going to hear right now. It's hard to describe in one word what The Tree of Life is about, <laughs> because it's literally about everything. Right. Um, but insofar as there's um, a narrative to the story, it's the story about um, a family growing up in, in Waco, Texas in um, the 50s, which is also where Malik um, grew up. It's a story about um, three boys and their relationship, um, Jack, R.L., and we don't really know the youngest son. We don't get his name very often. I think it's Steve, I think I want to say. <laughs> but, um, but it's told from the perspective of um, Jack and um, their uh, Jack's father and mother are the main the other main the main influences on his life the main forces in his life we might say played by um, Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain respectively and the film opens on um, the death of the middle um, son R.L. who was Jack's brother and Malik weaves the suffering of, of the loss of a beloved member of, of a family into the very heart of this, the story of the Tree of Life. The, the story opens with the loss of this brother and then um, a reflection back. 
it sort of jumps all in and out of time, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but it um, it kind of jumps back to the story of um, Jack's life growing up in Texas and his relationship with his brothers and the relationship with his mother and father um, and um, how that influenced his life. And, um, and then it um, ends with a very uh, a long and very beautiful sequence um, that somehow exists on the other side of time. Um, and only a filmmaker like Malik can make that sort of um, moving and mysterious and profound without being too without being sort of, um, I don't know, like, like, uh, kitsy, like we say before. Right. Uh, so that doesn't do justice to the movie at all, but that's the plot insofar as there is one. That's right. <laughs> for <yes>. the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, cause it's also, um, it's cosmic and, and it's, that's right. Oh, we haven't even mentioned, right. 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 There is, um, a 30 minute sequence, um, of the it's a it's a beautiful sequence of the unfolding of the entire universe um and so what, what Malik is doing is he's putting this the particular life of this one family and a, this one boy in fact and his and his family and his childhood in the in this context of the entire unfolding of the cosmos um and and so we should we should say too that Malik has been deeply influenced by biblical sources um and um the film opens actually with an epigraph from um a little passage from the book of job just against the black screen are the words um from job 38 verses 4 and 7 where it says where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy and of course um uh, in the context of the loss of this um, son, brother, in the in the midst of um, suffering and questioning of God, this reminds us of Job's own loss and suffering and God's um, response to Job that puts Job's own questioning to question himself. Right. right? But um, I was really struck, and I think that Malik is very sensitive to this as a filmmaker, that the the passage that he quotes is not just where were you that's we all remember that from the book of job but also um where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy and and um viewers of the film will be struck i think you can't help but be struck by the beauty of these the sequence of the world's um uh, unfolding of the creation, the birth and the death of stars and planets, and then the kind of focusing in on the unfolding of the kind of creative power of nature within within our planet and the the forces that are overwhelming but also incredibly beautiful. And um, Malik presents this as a relativizing of the particular suffering of this particular family, right? But also um, as a contrast of the particular um, pain and suffering of the loss of a child with the overwhelming uh, beauty of the created order. And so I think one of the things that Malik does that's, that's really amazing here is he, he, he says to us um, the perplexity of the loss of a beloved, beautiful child um, is held in contrast with the overall 
beauty, not of an indifferent cosmos, but as a cosmos that's charged with aesthetic glory. Mm-hmm. And so um, the question isn't like, well, what difference does the loss of one, you know, beautiful but ultimately small member of the cosmos mean in light of everything that ever, in light of the sort of unfolding of time. But instead, um, how could it be that a god could create something so beautiful, powerful, glorious that leads up to this and also allow for the kind of um, suffering that we see here and the loss of this particular instantiation of beauty? Um, that's a deeper kind of level of perplexity mm-hmm. than just um, what difference did this one life make, if I can put it that way. Right. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so as you were you know, narrating the narrative, in a way, as much as you can of the Tree of Life, you know, some of the features that you highlight left me and probably many viewers thinking, well, this is a Job tale. Yeah. This is a theodicy story. Um, right before the unfolding of the cosmos, uh, Mrs. O'Brien asks of God, where were you? Obviously right. in reference to when her son dies. Uh, at different points, it seems like Jack is accusing God of right. malevolence, maybe, or indifference at, at best. Right. Yet, I was struck in this paper that you wrote um, that you frame it uh, more so as an Augustinian tale of confession, of mm-hmm. narrating one's life beside God right. uh, from Jack's perspective. Because, as you wrote in the paper, and as I thought, this is very much a story of Mrs. O'Brien, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and Sean Penn's Jack seemed like a secondary character to me. Mm-hmm. But then rewatching it through the lens of, of how you um, sort of framed everything, it does seem to bear the marks of Jack's remembrance. Right. And obviously his mother being part of that. But what, what sort of tipped you off to this Augustinian dimension? Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, so... Um Two things, really. So um, I've been reading and studying Augustine for a long time, and um, the two things that struck me about about the Augustinian dimensions of this work by Malik. First is, Malik is really sensitive to the way in which memory, when confessed or put before God, is not just recalling, but is actually sacralizing. So think about the difference between remembering something and memorializing something. Um, Jack in the story is memorializing his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, to, to it's not just his life. He's memorializing his brother. He's memorializing his mother, his father, his relationships. And what does that mean to memorialize? It means, at least in part, to try to remember the goodness of the life, not just as your own, but as something given as a gift, right? And so a lot of, I think, um, Jack's struggle is to recognize the way in which his brother's life was given to him, and then the task, the sort of fundamental, it seems like the fundamental task for him and for his mother, and his mother is always the example that's... um, provided him of who does this is to give back the good gift that was given so in that sense and this is this is augustine through and through um one never speaks one's own life um with perfect clarity uh right 
And what can one give back to God anyway? Um, one of Augustine's favorite uh, ideas is that um, there's there's nothing that we have that we've not been given, including our, even our own words. So Augustine thinks that um, the task, Augustine writes the Confessions, and many people say this is the first sort of like autobiography. But um, uh, the philosopher Jean-Luc Marion points out that, um, no, Augustine's not speaking his own life. He's trying to say his life as it is seen beside and even seen by God in some way. So the way to memorialize is to offer back a gift that you've been given, which is to recognize that you're not in control of your own life in that sense, right? So confession in this sense is not just confessing the ways you've fallen short, but um, Augustine says we confess sin, but we also confess praise, yeah? So the way you memorialize is by praising, or gratitude is another way of, of putting this, right? So, so I think this is a story about trying to see your life from the perspective of the divine in this, in this sense. So that's one really big way. The other, the other way is I actually think um, when you look at the sto- uh, story, the confessions, Augustine's confessions is a story of conversion, and um, in the confessions, Augustine, all conversions are individual, but they also sort of follow a kind of pattern, right? And the pattern for Augustine in the confessions, maybe the pattern for all conversions, is the, the story of the prodigal son, right. right? Which is that a good, a gift from a good father grants the possibility, actually, of leaving the father, and that the mercy of the Father allows for that, it has really given the gift of freedom that allows the Son to go forth, um, per, not just permits it, but um, uh, even suffers that going forth, and then is always running out to, to welcome the return. And Augustine patterns his own conversion story around, around the prodigal son, and I think... Um, uh, we can get into the, some of the specifics here now, but I think that um, the way in which Malik has Jack not just say, like, this was my life, but have him constantly addressing in these voiceovers a thou, the thou who is the mysterious God always at work. Augustine says in the Confessions that God is more intimate to him than he is to himself. And a lot of the story of the Confessions is trying to get away from that um, incessant uh, um a gift at the heart of his being, right? Um, Jack is doing the same thing. He's constantly, he's perplexed, he's suffering, he's anguished, he's, um, but he's always confessing this before God, even in his accusations of God. How could you let something like this happen? But also saying, where, where were you, right? And also saying, what is it that you were trying to show me? Um, these are all um, trying to see his life from the perspective of the divine. It's interesting that rewatching the movie again, like Augustine's Confessions, does begin with him sort of meditating upon the fact that he can't remember his infancy, right? And what, and he, but he tries to imagine what that would have been like, right? right. And Jack's own narrative, is, which isn't his own, just his own narrative, actually does begin with him, yeah, uh, in the womb, right? Um, in a way, and, and sort of springing forth from his parents' love and. Um, and it actually be- begins earlier than that. It begins at the very creation of the universe, right? right? <laughs> right. Which, technically speaking, Augustine also does too, because mm. the Confessions, while it begins with his own 
the part of his life that he can't remember, namely his formation in the womb and then his infancy before he could speak and therefore before he could remember. The Confessions ends with three books that are just reflections on Genesis, mm-hmm. which is the beginning of all beginnings, right? right? So it's very Augustinian in that sense as well. Um, right. Augustine is, is really interested in origins, his own origin, but also the origin of all origins in in the very beginning, right? right. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's interesting that so much of that early life is seen in the O'Brien's front yard right? Uh, with his mother, obviously, and yeah. there's even a scene where uh, Mrs. O'Brien is teaching Jack the names of the animals, right? And he's naming the animals, which right. is very Adam-like. Oh yeah. And his father plants this tree. That's obviously mm-hmm. a central aesthetic piece of the whole movie. Um, he's constantly gardening with his father as well. Mm, um, right. Yeah. Actually, there and there's that kind of there's um, we can, we can talk about this. There's that equivocity, right? Um, on the one hand, the Edenic is never lost. Creation is still mm-hmm. shot through with the glory and goodness of that original. Um, um, it, what's the line from Hopkins about the, the freshest, the deep, deep down, down things, things yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That That's never left. Right. on the other hand, the father's constantly getting Jack to pull up the weeds, right? The Now by the toil and sweat, right. right, do we have to do this work of gardening? And, um, and his father's drawing lines. His father's across. constantly setting setting rules, drawing lines, and, and urging Jack to recognize the way in which the world, we could say the fallen world, really is, mm-hmm. um, right? Yes. So um, that's right, we're kind of on both sides of the of the garden there, which might be a good, I mean, I think the thing that's really Augustinian here is the, there's a story within the story that's a story of all of our souls, I want to say, and it's also the story of salvation of the salvation narrative we could we could spell it out this way that what we get in the very beginning and what we get in all life is what we could call an easy rapport with being by which we mean um the way in which being appears um initially as something beautiful welcoming something you think about the fact that what is most um definitive about childhood is play Mm-hmm. And play means, um, well, it evokes two forms of goodness that meet in what, we, what I'm calling this rapport, right? Or a kind of, um, um, yeah, an easy place of meeting in the between. On the one hand, you have the child's own body as experiences, like as full of life and energy and excitement and joy. And every day you wake up as a new day, right, in which you um, go forth and you you experience all of the things about yourself being in the world as something that, um, uh, in a a joyful and innocent way, puts yourself forward in the world. I am the kind of thing that can run and jump and play and discover things and laugh, um, etc., right? But on the other hand, what you have is a world that welcomes you. Um, Hansers von Balthasar talks about the welcoming smile of the child. This is the child's first encounter with being as saying, it's good that you're here and you're safe and welcomed, right? The world being smiles at us. So it's not just that I can, um, um, uh, let's say, um, like go swimming, but it's also that water has this like 
property about it that it buoys me up, right? So there's this meeting of my body's vital energies and the world is good, right? And beautiful um, and wondrous, filled with wonder that makes play possible. Well, that remains true, but um, as we all experience in our life and as Jack experiences in profound ways, the world is not simply... Um, creative and welcoming. There are also, um, nature presents itself as equivocal. It has two faces. And um, the wakening up to this can be, um, can be experienced as a kind of, it, it's a shock that rips us apart from that early embrace, right? Um, and it's really important that this comes second, secondarily. This is not the, our original experience of being. Um, but it is a side of nature that we can't just blink away. And um, in the film, uh, um, this ex- there's a number of experiences that the young Jack goes through, but the, the most shocking one is the death of his friend, of a friend who drowns in a pool, um, uh, um, you know, and this... It's a, it's a great image. It's a, it's a great in the sense it's a terrible image, but it's a great image of everyone's at play in the pool. All the kids are running around and playing and everything's carefree. And then suddenly that divide between life and death has been crossed and, and things are no longer the same. But it's the same elemental force of water that was the, the condition for the possibility of play now um, takes the, the same child's um, right, that's another one, a playmate over into beyond and into the realm of death. And, and Jack suddenly becomes aware, and this is, we say this is part of growing up, right? Mm. Um, that he becomes aware now of death and he sees all around him um, destruction, harm. There's a um, another horrific scene of a, um, again, kind of presented right on the outskirts of things, but he's dimly aware of it and then he sees it of of a, a house burning down, right? And then his friend now is scarred. He bears the kind of mark of this. So so nature was creative and gave birth and was good and had this beauty to it that is aching and overwhelming. But the very same nature is destructive and doesn't seem to care at all. It's not proportionate to us mm-hmm. in any way. Um, and it runs sort of roughshod over us. And so you have the initial rapport with being is good, and then the second movement where nature becomes equivocal and shows a different side of itself. And the question is, how do we live this equivocity? And um, Jack's way of living it is the way that many of us live it. It's the way that his father um, counsels him to live it, which is to meet the equivocity of nature by saying, I... I Will re- I will make myself distance from this so I won't be harmed. Um, it's a retreat to a kind of hardened interiority. But it has the kind of disastrous and unintended effect of actually, of not actually buffering you from this harmful effect of nature, but actually interiorizing, this is the way I put it in the paper, interiorizing the equivocity. Right. right? And so Jack himself begins to become equivocal. He recognizes the ways in which he himself 
can be an agent of destruction as well as of play. And this comes out in all sorts of ways. In, and this is where he's most Augustinian, right? The, the most famous episode in, the, in Augustine's early childhood is this famous theft of pears, where he, too, is playing with biblical motifs, right? The, right. the original kind of transgression in, in the garden that we see in Genesis 3. Well, Jack um, does similar things. Um, he, he joins his friends in games of destruction, and um, he, he trespasses into a neighbor's house in his kind of adolescent male, like, erotic awakening. It's very confused, and he doesn't know quite what's going on, but he steals a garment of clothing from a, a neighborhood um, woman who he... Who, is beautiful, so there's something good to be affirmed there, but also he doesn't quite know what he wants, and he recognizes that um, he's trespassing here, and he feels deeply guilty about it afterwards. So he wants to be in touch with beauty, and yet at the same time, he wants to make, he wants to trespass, um, right, and, and, and assert his own dominance over um, the goodness of things. I'm in control. I'm not subject to these forces that are more than me. Right. Um, and and what happens? It's what happens in all of our lives. He wakes up to a realization that the double-sidedness of nature has now taken root within himself. And he utters these lines. I mean, Malik is brilliant in giving these voiceovers where on the one hand Jack is right to ask, ask of God how could you let this happen right if nature is equivocal in this way is the source of all nature also equivocal right. is God indifferent or even worse malignant but on the other hand he also recognizes in himself why is it that I do the kinds of things that I hate what I've done does, doesn't give me solace or distance I've only interiorized what I found as problematic in an exterior way and and so these are the kind of three moves so faith has been shattered but now he's become the thing that he hates right um, and in his own experience of temptation he realizes he's now it's not just that evil presents itself from the outside it's that he's become the thing that he wanted to flee from right and it's interesting that he begins to become jealous of RLL, the brother. Um, right. I'm thinking of a scene where his younger brother's playing the guitar with his father playing the piano, right. showing his musical talent. But and but Jack is and, and so the father's in 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 the house. RLL's on the porch, and they're sort of crossing this barrier. But Jack's in the yard, right. just sort of marching around, uh, frustrated and jealous. And so the creativity that he's seeing. He's jealous of because he's been he, he's sort of he's feeling this destructive tendency within himself. Right. Look, jealousy is a complicated emotion, but in in part because it recognizes it affirms goodness. But what it jealousy is saying, um, uh, it's not enough for this goodness to exist in the world, for this beauty to exist. It has to be for me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so mingled with the affirmation of the goodness of something is a self-insistence and a kind of um, a, a self-assertion that says, if the good is not for me, then I can't, I can't affirm its goodness. You mentioned the uh, stealing of the, the woman's nightgown or lingerie, mm -hmm. whatever it was, right? right? And so he does want to appropriate right. something about her mysteriousness, 
But then he almost instantaneously feels shame. Right. And puts it in the river right. and hides it. And, exactly. Um, which is similar to what you were saying. That's exactly right. And I think what we see, what I think is most, um, the kind of the moment that, at least to me, is a, so I have, I have a, a younger sister and three younger brothers. And I remember with a kind of um, golden light that certain memories can... I, I remember how this movie evokes the experience of playing with my younger siblings and just the just the joy of that and the imaginative worlds that we would create. And um, Malik is remembering a kind of idyllic like time in the 50s where you could just go out and play and then your mom would call you from right. that. You <laughs> know, and I already... <laughs> yeah. And I already was living in a time where that wasn't quite... That wasn't quite what you could do. But I remember going out and creating whole worlds with my siblings um, and playing with them. But I remember, too, the... the uh, so I'm the oldest, like Jack was. And I remember, too, when when the play became more about a kind of self-expression of domination over right. my siblings. Yes. And Malik is brilliant in showing that this happens with Jack, that his play with his with his brothers turns into a play of wrestling and domination and strife and struggle and self-assertion, right? And this comes at the same time that um, Jack is becoming aware of the distance between himself and R.L.'s artistic abilities and in fact he even says at one line at one point in a voiceover the line is something like how do I get back to where they are right right the kind of nostalgia for a, a kind of innocence that prior that's a kind of that that early rapport with being mm -hmm. that Jack now is on the other side of so there can't be a return anymore in any easy way into that sort of early rapport and in fact Jack rightly would see that now is naive, right? That's to think the world is all good without the darker, the shadow side of things. Right. Um, and so there's, if if Malik kind of left it here, it would be kind of like the, the, um, the kind of naivete of the early, like, glory and play of things is overtaken by Jack kind of coming of age and becoming, if not cynical, at least, world world wise in some way right. right and this is in many ways the way his father is represented right mm -hmm. the world is a place of strife and you have to get ahead um by you can't be too honest be or too, too good, good. Yeah. yeah right um but what we have in the film what makes us what makes us like a deeply religious film is um or at least what i what really struck me was this the central role of rl his brother in teaching jack something new and it comes in. There's just this little. There's this little scene that um, seemingly is nothing, where where Jack um, shoots his brother's finger with a with a BB gun. But first he's, he he gets he convinces his brother. He says, "Do you trust me? Right. Put your finger over this gun, right?" And then he pulls the trigger, and the violation is not so much the physical harm as the violation of his brother's trust. Which right? also seems Augustinian to me, right? He just steals some pears. Right. That's it. It's nothing. It's, not, it's, it's a nothing. small thing, but he, it's everything. Exactly. <laughs> he breaks that rule, that line is crossed, right. and the relationship is, you know, there's a severing there. Well, the biblical story we should be remembering here is not um, the, the... Augustine reminds us of the original transgression in the garden. Malik uses this. This is the story of Cain and Abel, of course, right? Um, it's... it's um, it's fratricide. Um, it's the it's the RL has a perhaps naive but an innocent trust in his brother, 
I mean, in fact, at one point he says, I trust you, you're my brother. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, Malik really underscores this. Right. And why is it that Jack feels the need to to harm his brother who's good? On, on the one hand, we've got the mystery of iniquity. Why do we Why do we ever choose? It, it, it's inexplicable. On the other hand, we understand from the careful way Malik has laid out this life and we that Jack is struggling with... Um, the complex way in which nature shows two sides of itself and the ways in which this calls into question whether, really in the most basic way, whether what God has given us is good or not and whether I am actually embraced by the, the goodness of um, a, um, uh, a creator who's given me to be as good or do I have to determine myself um, and face and, and sort of assert myself in this way. And so this is this complicated assertion of the self against the good that's also recognized as good, um, as somehow trying to control the good or violate the good so that you're not, you're creating a distance between yourself and this shadowy play of goodness and, and harm. And Jack immediately recognizes the way in which he's violated something that he can never recover. Mm-hmm. And it moves him into this, incredible moment I think that we that um, uh, I think we've all experienced but um, but I think Augustine is one of the few figures who's really dwelled in this moment and I call it the kind of it's the kind of pathos literally the, the suffering of needing forgiveness and recognizing the way in which one cannot grant forgiveness to oneself and so Jack is reduced in this moment of recognizing that he's transgressed and yet he has to simply wait for the possibility of a, of, um, a kind of reparation or restoration that has to come from someone other than himself. Right. Now that moment is utterly decisive in a human life, it seems to me, because um, it's the recognition that my own self-determination is not enough to care for my own self. Augustine, in the famous conversion scene in the garden, he, he's waiting for something to come to him, something to be granted to him, and he's struggling with his own will, and he can't overcome his past life. And um, two amazing things happen. One is he hears in the voice of a child the phrase, tole leche, take and read. I think it's utterly crucial it comes in the voice of a child, in the same way that God, the creator of the universe, became a child that is to say utterly dependent on the gift of another person to care for him in the same way that Jack in this moment is reduced to a kind of dependency upon the goodness of another so that he can't be self-determining in this moment. But also when Augustine takes up, he, he reads um, um, from one of Paul's letters and, and what he reads there is, um, don't try to care for your own flesh, but look to Christ to care for you. That's what, what Augustine reads. Not that he hasn't read it before, but he realizes, oh, I was trying to overcome something myself, um, when really it was about sort of like opening a clenched fist, not like sort of like punching my way through or wheeling my way through something. Jack's in the exact same um, predicament with his brother R.L. after he's kind of violated this fraternal trust, and he has to wait. Um, He has to wait patiently, has to suffer undergo the kind of pathos of waiting for forgiveness. 
And forgiveness is a gift that's granted. It's not something that's grasped um, in that sense. And so the granting of this um, from R.L. grants Jack the... So his brother forgives him in this kind of gesture of forgiveness, and Jack experiences it as a kind of liberation, Um, not a return to the naive faith of his childhood, but the opening of, the way I put it in the, the paper, is a kind of renewed a renewed affirmation of the goodness of things that can countenance in some way the the way in which nature still shows itself as equivocal, but if we want to say deeper than that or higher than that, is another force also at work that can reaffirm the goodness of the created order through this kind of re-gifting in the forgiveness mm-hmm. um, that releases Jack from his own, the equivocity of the heart of his impotent willing redemption in the fullest sense of the word. Yeah. Because redemption doesn't deny the fact that there was this enslavement or being captured or or broken or whatever, right? Right. In fact, it addresses it head on. Exactly. And so what Jack doesn't say is, oh, now I see where you were, God, um, where I didn't before. But um, Jack says, what was it you were showing me in that moment? You were trying to communicate something to me. And R.L.'s gift of forgiveness, the forgiving is the kind of opening of an even higher kind of perplexity. What is it that can come through um, in what is it that's granted in the form through my brother in which God was showing me something beyond um, the kind of creative destructive dualities of nature, a deeper kind of, um, well, the tradition calls this grace, right? right. Yes. <laughs> um, um, grace is the gift that comes to us, um, not opposing nature, but as something deeper um, and higher than than nature. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is Jack's life, but then the really interesting thing that Malik does is he he seems to suggest for us that this is what Jack remembers or memorializes about his brother. His brother was this gift that opened up for Jack the possibility of a renewed life. And we encounter Jack, um, played by Sean Penn, as a, as a man who who is sort of caught up in, seems to be caught up in the day-to-day, um, you know, caught up in the kind of day-to-day of, of, of the kind of working world and... and it seems to follow, followed and it were at least set out on the path his father was pointing out to him, right? Yeah. As far as how to succeed in the world. And, yeah. And he's, maybe he's an architect. He's somehow, he somehow has a kind of artistic talent, but is also... He, he, he's moving in this world of, of concrete and glass. and right. um, But somehow in, the, in this renewal of remembrance of his brother, whom he lost... There's this kind of gift of the sight of what, of how it is that a remembrance of eternity can color and inform our lives mm. here and now. And so, again, the long Christian tradition in which, in which, with which Malik is sort of playing and barring is, is thinks about the eschaton, the end of time. And Malik gives us a vision of at the end of the at the end of the film. Um, again, another like thirty minute sequence. Um, sort of on the shore of eternity, right on the edge of eternity, in which what we have now is a meditation not on the beginning of time, but on the end of time, right? Which is not just the kind of um, cooling and um, 
ultimate unwinding of the universe, but the regathering mm-hmm. up the, into a kind of new, um, a kind of new life, a new Jerusalem, to borrow the biblical image, mm-hmm. and and um, the two things that seem decisive there are, um, um, on the one hand, the the Jack encounters or is given back his brother but his brother is given back as a child again a son um but really importantly not just sort of returned like everything will be okay in the end Uh, malik doesn't give us that kind of pat like easy ending instead what we have the the kind of final moments are these beautiful moments of um mrs o'brien the mother um, in this gesture, continuing to lift up her hands and open her hands and say to God, I give him back to you. I give you my son, which is precisely the gesture of forgiveness, right? I give back or of praise. Um, I give back the gift that I was given, mm-hmm. right? It's a recognition of the ways in which even of this beloved one, right? I'm I'm not ultimately the measure or the master of why this one was given or what was good about him, right? Right. And so this offering of praise that the mother accomplishes in, ultimately in the eschaton in some way, is the other model for Jack of what it is that his brother was and how it is that God was working or what it is that God showed him, right? Right. Um, In the, the goodness of this life, however brief, that you were given, what you were given was actually an opening into something beyond um, uh, this finite life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so deeply. So what we have in the tree of life is essentially the whole of scripture, right? <laughs> right. The tree in the beginning and the tree at the end, yes. um, right? The, 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 in the very beginning and then the eschaton, right? Um, and there's even a, a tree in the uh, during the narrative. I want to say it's halfway through, but there's a tree in the midst of this concrete sort of jungle. That's right. Which is maybe right. maybe uh, uh, not a reference to the crucifixion and the resurrection in the garden, but at least we might be able to see that there as well. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I think that he. It's it's a sign of the way in which grace is never absent. I think from mm-hmm. our lives, it's always kind of working. Um, it's also, I think far from relativizing the very particular life of the O'Briens in the 50s, is actually saying every life in that sense contains the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Every life also is oriented towards eternity. Right. Um, um, because eternity is not, this is a deeply Augustinian insight, eternity is not just more time. Mm-hmm. Eternity is um, actually, time is an image of eternity. Time is the unspooling image of eternity, which is all gathered up mm-hmm. together, if I can put it that way, and so the the kind of presence of the tree in the midst of things um, um, is a reminder that um, right even in the midst of kind of human technological efforts to master nature, still nature in its both ascetic glory and also its kind of indifference to us mm-hmm. um, blooms in that <laughs> sense, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much in there, but I mean, what you're saying about sort of the, the precious quality of every life as sort of packing, having packed within itself the story of uh, of the cosmos as well as redemption and salvation. Uh, you know, one of the maybe even more troubling scenes, I think, in the movie is when what we can presume is uh, 
Mrs. O'Brien, or not, Mrs. O'Brien's mother. Yeah. We can presume it's her, I guess, right. Right? right? Telling her daughter, who's just lost her son, that you still have the other two. Right. And as it's deeply, right. I don't want to say offensive, but it's c- clearly uh, injurious to Mrs. O'Brien. She right. knows that this is a gross offense against the unique preciousness of the son she just right. lost. Right. Um, and you, no one's replaceable or repli- replicable in, in, in right. those ways. Um, it just makes me think that within the tree of life, if it is what we're saying it is, there's so many little threads you can pull on. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned being a firstborn son. I am as well. And so you can always see Jack <laughs> in that light. <laughs> right. right? In really, and, and sort of ways of parenting. Right. And, I mean, there's so much. and <laughs> There's a lot going on there. There's there's really a lot. It's not entirely, you know, the, the first, I've watched the film, I don't know how many times um, now, but the first few times I... I saw my own father and maybe all fathers are the kind of stereotypical father in, in Brad Pitt's character, yeah. right? Um, um, and um, in The Mother, I saw the kind of prototype of... There's a... I don't know how apocryphal this is, but supposedly um, uh, Terrence Malick, his filmmaking style increasingly has been to kind of... It's very improvisational, and he lets his he gives his actors kind of the um, the scene... And the kind of general thrust of here, there's going to be an argument here, or these are some words to work with, but um, just go and we'll film and we'll see what we get. And so he told Jessica Chastain to prepare for her role that she should go and look, go to art museums and look at images of the Madonna and child. So, okay, there's your paradigm for a mother, it's the, <laughs> the mother of God. Okay. Right. So, um, but it's not entirely clear to me that. Um, uh, it's more complicated than than just she represents goodness and grace right. and the father represents nature. I mean, I actually think there's a kind of like, in the beginning, there's a bit of misdirection because there's a voiceover from the mother, from Mrs. O'Brien saying, you know, the nuns taught us there were two ways to go through this world, the way of nature or the way of grace. Nature insists upon itself. Grace gives itself away completely. Well, um, that's a, a kind of dichotomy, actually, that is, um, that the rest of the film, I think, um, in, in brilliant and important ways under Kant's. Um, for example, um, uh, nature in in, the, in those scenes of the cosmic unfolding and the kind of ascetic glory and goodness. What is nature? What is nature for? It is. It is not for anything. It's the gift. Except it's the. What I mean is, it's not relativized with respect to to something. It is the it is the giving, the unfolding gift of being itself, or, or it's not the giving; it is the giftedness of things, right? Uh, or on the other hand, um, um, it can't be the case uh, that that grace is a kind of pure selflessness, since um, the affirmation of saying that something is good, right? Um, is saying not just, yes, it is beautiful and good in itself, but also it's good that you exist because you delight me. So the delight that the mother that evidently takes in her children is a delight, is one in which she is invested in them, right? In a certain sense, she is the most connected to earth. She's always barefoot. She's always mm-hmm. showing them the right, the beauty, the animals, the, the glory of nature, right? right? So... So these things are complicated and complex, and part of becoming a part of growing up, in in fact, is indeed coming face to face with 
the reality of the destructive powers of the world. So the father's not wrong either, right? No, um, and there's scenes where he's nurturing and loving and playful, yeah. and there's scenes where she's... It, it, there's one stretch where it seems like he's away on business and she's at home alone with the boys, and they run roughshod over her, right? right? They, they take right. liberties, and it's, right. just, it's chaos, right? right? Exactly. So there's right. a way of giving of oneself that isn't always beneficial. Right? And her relationship to the father as well is... Yeah. is um, Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien have a complicated relationship too, but is she too submissive, right. um, or is right. she, you know, um, it appears so at times, right? She's yeah, two hands off and right, uh, and willing to step in. That's right, and she, that kind of final, that final scene of her giving back is the, it's the meeting I think actually of grace and nature, or it's the meeting of. Um, Augustine suggests in the Confessions that we become most free when we recognize and return the gift that we've been given. There's a kind of active receptivity or a stepping into. Freedom is not mere self-assertion, but it also isn't just like saying, like, grace isn't just like um, passiveness either, or quietude, right? True freedom comes in that kind of embrace and return of what we've been given, um, mm-hmm. right? right? And um, I think that's what's accomplished by the mother in the end. Incidentally, this is what's accomplished in forgiveness as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, on the one hand, forgiveness does nothing. It doesn't do anything. What? But on the other hand, it does everything in gifting the nothingness or the annihilation of the, of the violation. Right. It's saying... I will make this be as nothing, right? Right. Um, that's the gift I give to you, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, uh, that's um, that's a kind of astonishing. I wish philosophers don't talk a lot about forgiveness, mm. um, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's a strange sort of omission. Um, they talk about a lot. They talk about evil and transgression and all of these things, but they don't talk a lot about forgiveness. Right. Um, um, but it seems to be a fundamental experience of human, of of human existence, um, and I, I really think it's it's central to this story. So many thanks to Paul Camacho for his time and insight. Again, I really like and have benefited from his way of of viewing and understanding this movie, The Tree of Life. And so I'd recommend that you do yourself a favor and drop down into the show notes, and there you'll find a link to the paper referenced throughout this interview. It's well worth the time. It's well worth the read. And again, I highly recommend it. As I also recommend uh, doing yourself a favor and and watching The Tree of Life. Uh, Maybe set aside a couple hours this upcoming weekend or maybe sometime during this Lenten season uh, to take this movie in, which, again, can be be challenging in, in ways, but I think it's extremely rewarding. It's a movie that ever since I watched it has never left me. Uh, in some way, shape, or form. And so I hope you get uh, as much out of it as I have, and if not more. Um, But finally today, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, If you like what you've been hearing on the show, and you could help it along a bit, maybe uh, give it a top shelf rating. Definitely subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully you liked it enough that you'd recommend it to a friend, and we'll do just that. And uh, if you do end up watching the movie, uh, The Tree of Life, I'd be interested as to what you thought. So drop me an email at matt at curiouscatholicpodcast.com and let me know what you thought about it. I'd be uh, definitely interested to hear to hear your thoughts. Well, until the next episode, let's all continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>